Good morning. Um, a couple of things before I get to the message. So uh, we are one church, but we meet in two congregations. We meet here, and we have another congregation down on the Ashley Road. And uh, that makes how we organize Sunday in terms of teams, especially in terms of speakers, a little bit more complex. Uh, and um, my preference is to just speak at one location so I can be around for the whole service. But in terms of looking at my diary and uh, the number of times I'm preaching this year here in other churches and how we organize ourselves between the two, it just makes much more efficient use of my time if when I preach here, I'm preaching at both congregations. So pretty much every Sunday this year when I'm preaching, I will be preaching here, then leaving and uh, going down to 502. So I'm sorry about that in terms of not being around at the end to talk to people, but that's uh, just how it's going to work better for us. John, are you going to fix my crackle? He's on it. So uh, that's how we'll be organized this year in terms of my preaching here. Uh, another one is I'd like us to pray. You're going to come and fiddle with my pocket. Uh, I'd like us to pray for uh, Ian and Lindsay Kennedy up in Glasgow. They are launching, public launch of Glasgow Grace Church next Sunday. And do you want me to swap onto the... Oh, how inconvenient. There you go. I can stand here and hold it if you like. No, that's fine. Thank you. Uh, uh, Glasgow Grace is actually officially launching next Sunday and they, the venue that they thought they had uh, fell through last minute and so Ian's been desperately searching for another one. There is another fantastic venue which we felt he should go for but is massively expensive but we just last night made the decision that he needs to go for it in faith and we'll find the money from somewhere. So it's going to take a three-month uh, booking initially on a fantastic venue which is going to cost him about £12,000. So, city centre city center church plants are expensive, but we serve a God who's able to provide for city centre needs. So it'd be great to pray for Ian and Lindsay over this next week. Um, it'd be great to pray for them next Sunday. But uh, why don't we just pray for them now as well as, as they get going, and as Ian talks to his group this morning about the plans for next Sunday. Yeah, Lord, we do thank you so much for Ian and Lindsay. Lord, thank you for that group that has gathered to them since they left us last summer to move to Glasgow. And Lord, we anticipate a great public launch next Sunday and uh, trust you that this venue, uh, even though it's so much money, actually, because it's such a great venue, will really help them in their mission to that city. Lord, we do pray for a great city centre church and a great city centre provision. So I ask that you supply all their need. Pray this, uh, this morning as they, as they meet uh, together to plan for next week, that you'll be with them and pray all this week. They'd know a sense of your grace and hand upon them. And Lord, next Sunday as they start, there'll be such favour and blessing on them as they gather. Amen. Right, as Richard said, we're doing just a little three-part series uh, for the rest of January called Money, Sex and Power about why we are different, and we are different as Christians, or at least we should be. Uh, one of the readings this week in our community Bible reading was from Luke 6, and Jesus speaking these words shows just how different we are meant to be. Jesus says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. And this is crazy stuff. These are very familiar words. Sermon on the Mount, we're used to these words, the Beatitudes, Jesus speaking these words. But this is madness. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's crazy talk. Bless those who curse you. Are you joking? Somebody curses you, you should curse them back, surely. Pray for those who, mis pray for those who mistreat you. Surely it should be scheme how to get your revenge. If someone slaps you on one cheek, punch them back. No. Turn to them the other also. I mean, this is madness. It's, they're very familiar words, and they can just kind of bounce off us. They're so familiar, but 
Think about how crazy this is. This is not how human life normally functions. These words of Jesus. As Jesus talked about what the kingdom of God is like, it's so different from how the world normally operates. And so we are called as Christians to be different. And we don't want to be different just for difference's sake. We don't want to be different just to be kind of a bit different and contentious. No, we want to be, our aim here at Gateway Church is to be as faithful as we possibly can to the Word of God revealed to us in Scripture. And when we find Scripture confusing, the way that we navigate our way through it is by being informed by what the church throughout the ages and throughout the world has understood about these passages, about these verses. And so we read the words, we expect the Holy Spirit of God to illumine our understanding so we can understand and apply it, and we look at what the church has taught for the last 2,000 years and what our brothers and sisters around the world understand by these things, and we seek to be as faithful as we possibly can to that. And that does mean that we're going to be different from the world around us because the kingdom of God is different. The kingdom of God is the kingdom where you don't seek revenge on your enemies, but where you pray for them and bless them. And over these three weeks, we're planning to look at three different areas, money, sex, and power. Um, next week, we're going to be looking actually more about how men and women function together. And when we talk about power, we're going to be looking more about how authority should be exercised in the church. So really, a more accurate title for this series would have been Money, Complementarity, and Eldership. But that's not nearly so snappy as Money, Sex, and Power. So Money, Sex, and Power it is. Now, why, why do we need to do this? Why am I taking three weeks at the beginning of a new year to look at these subjects? Partly it's because the gap between what we believe the Bible teaches and what our culture that we live in understands about these things, in many areas, is that gap is growing. It's, it's widening. Uh, we have been used in Europe to living in what is a broadly Christian society, and the assumptions that many people had about life were shaped very largely by a Christian faith. That's less and less true, and so there's often a, a, a bigger and bigger gap between what we believe the Bible teaches and the way in which our culture thinks. And then we need to then recognize that can cause confusion in the church because we live in our culture, we live in our world seven days a week, and we come into church together, we're together just for a short time on a Sunday and life groups in the week and other bits and pieces, but we bring our worldly assumptions into church life because that's the world we live in, and so even in church life, we can have confusion about these things, and so we need to teach into them and remind ourselves and make sure we're lined up with what Scripture teaches us. Another reason why we're doing this is because we don't want to be embarrassed about the ways in which we are different from the world around us. But there is a need for us to explain it. If we think differently about things from the way our world does, then we owe an explanation to try and explain why we believe the things we do and do the things that we do. Because we we don't want to just be like the world around us. We don't just want to be like the surrounding city. We're called to be a city in a city. The Church of Jesus Christ, local churches like this one, are called to be colonies of heaven, outposts of heaven. We're meant to be a kind of a little city in the bigger city, demonstrating what it is to follow Jesus, be faithful to his words, live filled with the Spirit, love one another, and witness to Jesus. And that's what we want to do. And uh, some of the things I'm going to be talking about, particularly uh, the next couple of weeks are things which are important, but we can sometimes be a little bit shy about. 
especially next week's one when we talk about how men and women relate to one another. That's probably the most contentious issue in our society at this time. And we can be a little bit shy about articulating what we believe, but I don't want us to be shy. Uh, it could actually be a bit of a watershed moment for, for some of us in working these things through. And uh, for those of you who don't yet know Jesus, or maybe new to the church, looking for a church, this could be a really important three weeks for you as you hear what we believe and uh, either as you think, yeah, that sounds about right, or maybe you think, that sounds completely wrong, or that sounds about right, but I don't really like it. What do I do with that? So this could be a really important three weeks for you. So, Lord, I ask that you would help us as we look at these three areas. Pray, Lord, you'd help me to serve these precious people, your people, well. And, Lord, I pray you would help us to be faithful to your word in Scripture and live it out, Lord, even if that can seem costly in the world in which we now live. Amen. Right, we are, over these three weeks, going to be using First Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy, as our guide. We, last year, were doing a series in Acts, which we'll pick up again in February. And where we paused in the book of Acts was the point at which the Apostle Paul had just been with Timothy in the city of Ephesus. And then later on, after the book of Acts is completed, the story there ends, uh, Timothy goes back to lead the church in Ephesus, and the Apostle Paul writes him this letter first, Timothy. And the letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy, is kind of it's the most complete kind of guide to this is how a local church should operate that we have in the Bible. It's uh, probably the clearest setting out of what local church life should look like. And so we're going to use First Timothy to help us navigate through these things. And we're starting today with money, which is a good subject to start with on the 13th of January, when everybody's still reeling from Christmas, when you know that the credit card bill is about to have to be paid and January's uh, salary hasn't yet been paid to you and you're thinking, how am I going to catch up and how am I going to pay for it and all that kind of stuff. So this is a great time of year to think about money. And there is no question that when it comes to money, we are different. We are. Now, you can, I'm going to show you some, I like a good graph, and I'm going to show you some graphs just to prove that we are different from how most people are. We in this church, and Christians generally in churches like ours, give away much more than is normal. Um, in terms of what people give to charity, 61% of people give something to charity every year which means that 39% of people don't. Only a quarter of people give something to charity every month. And the average donation that is given is £18. Now, that's actually, if you know about statistics, that's the median donation. So that's the one that's right in the middle. So some people give millions. Some people give 2p. The one that's in the middle, the most kind of right there, is £18. Now, it's different for us. In, for us, last November, which is the last month I've got full figures for, we gave £21,500 in November in this church. And during November, we had an average attendance between our two congregations of 269 people. So that means that rather than giving £18 as an average gift, we per person, man, woman, and every baby, on average, gives 80 quid a month. So this is just indisputable that we give far more money away than most people do. We are different. Here's the next graph, graph of monthly giving trends over the last six years. Uh, we give more and more every year. 
our giving goes up every year. Partly that's because we've seen some numerical growth, and as more people attend, you'd expect more money to come in. But it's also because we're learning to be more and more generous. So we give away more money than other people do, and every year we give more money away than we did the previous year. We are different when it comes to money. Now, why is this? We don't give in order to gain access to heaven. We don't fall into that religious trap. We don't give to get into God's good books and for him to welcome us at the pearly gates one day. And we don't give in order to gain social kudos. We don't give as many people actually do give to charity when you want your name to appear on the TV screen when it's children in need. We don't give in order to gain social status. Not many people in the church know what other people are giving. You don't give and people then say, oh, wow, that's amazing how much you're giving because people don't know. We're not giving to gain social kudos. We do participate in the national economy like other people. We have jobs, we pay taxes, we do all that stuff. But our basic assumptions about the economy are entirely different because we believe that in the end, it all comes. Every penny, every pound, all of it comes from God. It all belongs to God and it all comes from God. In the end, it's not about the businesses and the banks and everything else. In the end, it's all about God. It's his and it comes from him. And so we, good, we give because God is good and his mission is so big. And we give because giving is an act of worship. And generosity is the framework by which we think about these things. So let's see what Paul says to Timothy about this. 1 Timothy chapter 6, page 1194. And we're going to pick it up where in these Bibles there's a heading being put in which says false teachers and the love of money. We're going to read from there, which is the end of verse 2 of chapter 6. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. Uh, when Paul says that, he's referring to the things he's taught so far in the first five chapters of the letter, and he's also introducing the things he's going to speak about. So these things are important. You're to teach and insist on these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great. What? Gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And drop down to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so, what? Uncertain. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for what? Our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. 
In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Right, let's just uh, clear a few weeds out of the way with what Paul says here. Paul's instructions here, they're not incidental or indifferent. He says, look, you've got to teach these things and um, insist upon them. This means that our attitude to money and possessions is a gospel matter. The way that we think about money is pretty central to the whole way that we understand our faith in Jesus Christ. How you handle your stuff is going to be a reflection of what you believe about Jesus. These things are really important. And there are a whole number of mistakes that we can make when it comes to our stuff, which Paul identifies here. And they're things which look very normal in the eyes of the world, but which in the kingdom of God are meant to be different. One of them is that you can fall into the mistake of thinking that godliness is a means to gain. Now, in our translation here, it says that godliness is a means to financial gain. That word financial has actually been put in by the Bible translators to try and clarify, but it's, it's gain broadly, which is really implied here. Financial and all kinds of gain. And it's possible to become part of a church because you're looking for gain. You think, if I join these people, if I join this church, this will make life easier for me and I'll get looked after by these people. And often that's true. We in the church, we want to look after one another. That's what we're called to do. But the gospel message is not primarily about achieving a better quality of life. If the reason why you say you want to follow Jesus is to make life better in some kind of material sense, you're missing the gospel. That's a mistake not to make. Another mistake we can make is to confuse the temporary and the eternal. We can do this by living as if now is all that there is, that there is nothing beyond this life, that you just got to grab everything you can in the years that you have. That's a mistake to make. Or an alternative kind of mistake, flip side of the coin to make on this one, is that we think, well, there is something beyond this life, but somehow I'll be able to take all my toys with me. And so I'm going to accumulate as much as I can now, and hopefully I'll be able to carry it with me to the other side. That doesn't work either. And what Paul says here is that a better strategy for life is contentment. That godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, I don't know about you, but I know personally this is a real fight. The fight for godliness with contentment. Because it's very easy to become discontented. I hope that's not just me. Well, it would be great if it was just me. I'd just stop preaching right now. <laughs> Did you see uh, Francis and Patrick Connolly, the couple from Northern Ireland, who on the New Year's Day lottery won 115 million pounds. God bless them. Now, I don't know about you, but saw that, and it's very easy to immediately start feeling some discontent. 115 million quid for what? For nothing? For a two-quid lottery ticket or however much it costs? Now, citizens of the kingdom of God... Choose contentment because we have hope for the eternal. And that's not just some pie-in-the-sky thing which means that what happens now materially on the earth is of no consequence. That's not, not the case. But it means that we fight for contentment now because godliness with contentment is great gain. If you're godly and content and materially poor, that is more gain than winning 115 million quid on the lottery. You've got to fight for that. Don't confuse the temporary and the eternal. 
Another mistake we can fall into is desiring riches because Paul says here that desiring riches is harmful. Now, we all know the stories of rich people who have bad things happen to them, and we all enjoy those stories. When you hear about the rich person who's something terrible has happened in their life, it's kind of, ah, hmm, things work out in the end. Karma strikes. But the thing is that in, this, in his instructions here to, to Timothy, Paul doesn't say that being rich is the problem. He says that wanting to be rich is a problem. And those are two very different things. Not being rich is a problem, wanting to be rich. And it's the harmfulness of desire for riches which is the problem. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's much more challenging. So I think it's easy for us, easy for me to think and say things like, it's not that I want to be rich, but it would be great to have loads of money. And actually not wanting to be rich is very countercultural. You think about how much of our society, think about how much of our entertainment shows like The Apprentice or whatever it might be, how much of the world actually, how valued wanting to be rich is, how we teach that, how that is a societal value. We should want to be rich. And Paul says here that the desire, the wanting to be rich, can be potentially very harmful. So what Paul's teaching here is not a hostility about having money, but he's wanting Timothy, wanting the church in Ephesus, wanting us to recognize that we actually have something much more valuable. And it's not worth wandering from our faith for the sake of money, because what we possess in Christ is of far greater value than all the money in the world. And so don't sell yourself short by pursuing riches in a way which means you abandon your faith, because that's just going to end up in a big old grief-filled eternal mess. Much better is to treasure our riches in Christ. So, those kind of weeds cleared out of the way. How should we actually handle our money? It's very interesting. Paul says here, verse 17, command those who are rich. So clearly there were some in the church in Ephesus who were rich. And what Paul says here in these verses to the rich, I think is helpful to us all in how to handle our money. And we need to recognize that in these instructions, even how we define who is rich and who is poor is always relative. In this congregation, I know there's some here, I'm looking at some of you I know, who are really struggling financially. It's hard just to make ends meet day to day, week to week. Others who are much more comfortable. But there's poverty and riches is always relative. Compared to Francis and Patrick Connolly with 115 million pounds, God bless them, we all in this room are desperately poor. But compared to Bill Gates, who has 92 billion dollars, the Connollys are scraping about on pretty much nothing. And poor old Bill Gates is 45 billion dollars behind Jeff Bezos, the boss of Amazon. So Bill must feel pretty poor compared with Jeff. It all depends where you stand. And if we think about the context to which Paul's writing, the first century in Ephesus, I've been to Ephesus, seen the ruins. Nobody in Ephesus had indoor running hot and cold water. Nobody in Ephesus had an indoor flushing loo. Even the richest person in Ephesus didn't have what we take for granted. Nobody had electric lights. So riches and poverty is always kind of somewhat relative. It all depends where you're standing in the world. And so I think what Paul says here to the rich in Ephesus has relevance to all of us in this room, whether you feel poor, whether you feel wealthy. And the key word here 
I want us to dig down into is the word generous. What does generosity do? Let's run through this quickly, and it will have to be quick. Firstly, generosity resolves the tension between prudence and liberality. Now, financial prudence is wise. If your finances are out of order, everything else in life gets disordered as well. If you get stuck in debt, that is just a miserable place to be. It messes up everything else in your life. It just does. And so prudence financially is good, and that requires real discipline. Proverbs 13 says, Dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. The prudent person learns to add little by little to their finances in order to accumulate something. Now, the trouble with that is, if you do that, that can easily then lead to having faith in your bank account, the little by little you've accumulated, and that can easily lead to what essentially is being pretty mean. So we want to be prudent, but we don't want to be mean. There's then liberality, and liberality says, well, Let's not worry about it. Let's just spend it and not worry. And it was Jesus who said, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. And you could take those instructions of Jesus and completely misapply them and just become reckless. You could take that verse and you could say, well, hey, well, I'm just going to spend all my money on booze and clothes then because that's what Jesus has told me to do, which isn't really what Jesus tells you to do. The thing is, we can claim to be prudent when actually we're just being mean, <clears throat> and we can claim that we're being liberal when actually we're just being irresponsible. How do you navigate between prudence and liberality? I think the way through is generosity. Generosity requires prudence, because if you're not prudent, if you don't add little by little, you're not going to have any resources to be generous with. So generosity requires prudence. But generosity also takes risks because generosity trusts our Heavenly Father that he can supply for us. And so the generous know how to add little to little and they know how to give big. There's a whole way of thinking. It's a way of thinking where you're thinking the whole time, how can I be more generous than I am? What, need, what steps can I take in order to add some more so I've got more resources to be more generous with? And when do I just need to take some big faith steps and give away what seems crazy? I've learned some lessons on this over the last few years from having more and more to do with some of our friends in other parts of the world, particularly some of our American friends. And we can say, oh, well, that's right for the Americans, they're all rich, which isn't really the case. But... Uh, particularly my friend Donnie, who's been here, Donnie Griggs from North Carolina. He's someone who's taught me in a new way about being generous. I think our approach to life, probably particularly for the British, is we can try and get away with a minimum. You go somewhere, go out for a drink, go for a meal, and you, how much do we have to tip? And how small can we make it? Donnie's taught me, be as generous as you possibly can be. And we as Christians, we need to think more and more that way, not getting away with the minimum, but getting away with the maximum. Prudence, liberality, navigate them by being generous. Second thing, generosity fights fear. The Bible talks about money using a term, term mammon, which kind of refer, refers to a spiritual power, that money isn't just money, but there is a spiritual force behind money. And it's very easy to fear, feel fearful when it comes to our money. We can easily, you know those moments you kind of, Feel it, literally, physically. Ah, oh, how am I going to pay for this? 
how are we going to tackle this? So much of the heat around the debate in Brexit is actually because of fear. What's going to happen financially? It's fear-driven. Now, followers of Jesus Christ are called to live in freedom, not in fear. And overcoming our fears is actually an act of spiritual warfare. So Paul's instructions here are, don't put your hope in wealth. Why not? Because it is so uncertain. It is. So what should we do? We should trust God and be generous. Now, mammon, the power behind money, speaks to us. You've heard me talk about this before, but it does. I know this myself when it comes to when I want to be generous or give stuff away, that it does kind of speak. It whispers. It says, you can't live without me. If you give me away, I'm gone, and you'll never get me back. And then what's going to happen? It does. It whispers into our ear like that. Whereas generosity trusts in God's limitless supply and believes that money generously given away isn't lost, but actually is sown. It's not just lost, it's like a seed that's planted which will reap fruit. And a better way, rather than listening to this, which will say, don't give me away, you'll never see me again, the much better approach, as a friend once instructed us here to, to think, was to say, I'll be seeing you again. You're going to come back. Now, I, bizarrely, in the grace of God, I had experiences on Friday. Friday morning, I gave away some cash to somebody I just wanted to bless. Friday afternoon, I got home from the office, and somebody had put a gift through our door, a bit more than what I'd given away in the morning. It's just bizarre. I'll be seeing you again. <laughs> Third thing, generosity is worship. Generosity wins the fight that it really is in God we trust. American Dollar Bill, of course, very famously, has in God we trust on it, which is kind of meant to be a statement of trust. Also seems pretty ironic. That question, oh, who are you really trusting in? Are you trusting in the greenback? Are you trusting in God? When we are generous, we're saying, no, we really do trust in God, not in the cash. Generosity is a statement of our trust in God, which makes generosity an act of worship. When you give to Gateway Church, that is an act of worship. Sometimes people can be concerned. What are we giving our money to? Is it being used wisely? And we take that. Seriously, we have all kinds of legal and charitable regulations we follow. We have very robust financial systems in place. We have trustees who are legally responsible. The elders are all very conscious of these issues. Les and the finance team are brilliant on this stuff. But what we do with the money actually isn't the key thing when it comes to you giving it. The key thing is that giving is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. Fourth thing is that Generosity refuses to procrastinate. Procrastination is when you put off till tomorrow what you should do today. And it's very easy for the, to do this when it comes to our giving. We can, start, we can say things. See, see this with young people who say, I'll start giving once I've managed to save up a deposit for a house because how on earth am I going to save for a house? So I have to do that and then save up money for the deposit for the house. You get the house and then it's, oh, we're going to have some kids now. I'll start giving once the kids are grown up because the babies are so expensive and then you find the kids are teenagers and suddenly they're even more expensive than babies are. And you say, well, I'll start giving once the kids have left home and then the kids leave home and you find that you, they're still expecting you to pay for everything and life's still even more expensive. And 
you find that actually you've never got into the habit of generosity. The solution, of course, is just to start. It's true of so many things in life. If I had started to learn an instrument or learn a language 30 years ago, I'd probably be fairly competent at that by now. I didn't because it seemed hard. And it could be the same with giving. Now, generosity refuses to procrastinate. Just gets on with it. Fifth thing is that generosity is honest. We human beings are very prone to being self-deceitful. We lie to ourselves all the time. And we tend to compare ourselves with other people all the time. And when it comes to morality, human beings tend to compare themselves favorably to other people. I'm a bit better than they are as a moral entity. But we tend to compare ourselves unfavorably with others when it comes to our finances. Oh, they've got more than I have. And it's just human psychology that we tend often to be most aware of the people who seem to have just that little bit more than we do. Talking about Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, it's just so astronomical, we can't even get our heads around it, it's kind of a joke. Even the Connollys with 115 million quid, that's so huge, it doesn't seem relevant. But if you're living in a one-bed flat, you're probably aware of the person who's living in a three-bed flat. And if you're living in a three-bed flat, you're probably thinking about the person who's living in a three-bed semi. And if you're in a three-bed semi, you're probably thinking about the person who's living in a four-bed detached with a big garden. And if you're living in a four-bed detached with a big garden, you're probably thinking about the person with the next step up. Because we always are most aware of the person who's just that little bit ahead of us, and envy wants to have us. Oh, it's not fair. Now, generosity is honest. Generosity is honest about the blessings that we do have. I know I bang on about these things a lot, but it's so important just for us to recognize how blessed we are to live in 21st century Britain. We are. Think about these kind of things. In 1840, 180 years ago, 50 in 100 deaths were the deaths of children. 180 years ago, all those of us who are parents would have experienced kids in our family dying. All of us, without exception, would have done. Now, only about one in 100 deaths as a child, praise God. In 1947, half of homes in the UK had no hot water. You had to boil it up in a kettle. In 1968, four in 10 of those aged over 16 had no natural teeth left. In 1970, the year I was born, one in six households was still sharing an outside brick loo. None of us are doing that anymore. The number of fatal accidents at work has declined in the past century by about 97%, despite a doubling in the population. There's so many things we just take for granted. We assume our kids won't die. We assume that we won't die at work. We are used to having a toilet in our own house. We are used to turning on a tap and hot water comes out. 50, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, that wasn't the experience of anyone. And so generosity is honest. It says, first of all, wow, we are blessed just to be alive today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, I was born now and not 300 years ago when I'd just have been digging turnips out of the mud with my teeth and <laughs> would have been full of lice and would have been dead with my miserable wife by the time I was 23. What generosity does 
is not to measure from what we don't have, from what we lack. Generosity measures from what we possess and what we can do with that. And that means that even those who are genuinely materially poor, by the grace of God, can still be generous. The most extraordinary scripture which describes this is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and describing how other Christians have acted. Now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. But I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. How did the Macedonians do that? I guess they were honest. They didn't look at what they lacked. They looked at the little they had, thanked God, and somehow were generous. Sixth thing, generosity is evangelistic. Generous people tend to be popular. None of us want to hang around with misers. Now, this is important for us as a church. What is the reputation of the church in the UK? Normally, it is a bunch that we are a bunch of misery, miserly penny grubbers with thermometers outside our buildings trying to raise cash for the leaking roof and the broken organ. That does not witness to the glories of Christ. We need to have a reputation for being generous. We're called to be a dynamic community who know the limitless supply of a bountiful father. And that means we're called to generosity, financial generosity and relational generosity and spiritual generosity, which brings positive change to the community which we serve. It's an evangelistic act to be generous. And last thing is that generosity is joyful. Paul says here, his urging is that people would take hold of the life that is truly life. Compare that with what he says a few verses earlier, verse 10. Those who pursue money wander from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. There's a choice here. You either choose life that is truly life or you choose grief. I want, and I want it for you, that we choose life, not grief. And that means that we choose to be generous. The generous choose life. The generous choose joy. We are different. Hallelujah. Let's live like it. Amen.